We think hearing from our listeners is the bee's knees. To that end, you can follow at High Files on Twitter, like the High Files on Facebook, or visit onyxedgestudios.com for all sorts of altered fun. Enjoy the show and spread the love. Go four three two five. Four three two five. Uh, five four eight six. Two zero nine three. Uh, eight six one two. One zero three seven. Eight one nine. Seven two five eight. Three four zero one. Five seven zero. Tell you what you're gonna do. Tell you what we're gonna do. I got a great idea. How about we try singing it? That'll get the blood boiling a little bit. Five seven zero four. Go. I know you got it. I know you got a set of lungs on you. Five seven zero four. I see any smiling it's jumping jacks. Go. Five seven zero four three four zero one seven two five. Seven two five eight. You think this is funny? Start again. Hiya. Like a pretty little girl. Chapter one. Spin up all missiles. If memory serves me, there was but one time in my life when I stripped away all my clothes in a room full of strangers. The room I stood in was saturated with two commingling scents, industrial disinfectant and human apprehension. Row after row of nondescript tables filled the room. Atop each table sat sets of empty, equally nondescript cardboard boxes, spaced out arm's length from each other. I stood behind one of these cardboard boxes, dressed in jeans and a sweatshirt. To my right and left were strangers, each standing behind identical cardboard boxes. Eyes transfixed in a straight beam, fearfully focused on nothing. Strip off all your clothes, the command rang out, addressing everyone in the room with utter sincerity. Put your clothes and everything out of your pockets, all personal belongings in the box in front of you. I complied, first doffing my sweatshirt, then my jeans. I paused and wondered, do I really have to get naked? As if in answer to my internal question, I heard a bellow far off and to my left, directed at another poor unfortunate soul. Damn it, I said, take off your clothes. That means all your clothes. Now take those damn drawers off and put them in the fucking box. This was Navy Boot Camp. The United States Navy has been in the business of training heterogeneous groups of civilians in order to transform them into homogenized sailors for almost 250 years. By now, they're very, very good at it. The process begins with boot camp. Step one. In boot camp, you learn how to be a sailor, but you don't learn the specialized technical skills you'll need for the fleet. For that purpose, the Navy has various pipeline programs that take you from don't know shit. You are the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. To my shit don't stink. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. 
You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. In a disorienting, compact, efficient amount of time. My training pipeline started with two months of boot camp before I was whisked away to Connecticut for an additional two months of submarine school. Finally, I spent eight months in the armpit of Georgia, learning to operate, maintain, and troubleshoot submarine-launched nuclear missiles. Accelerate your life. Most everything I learned about the strategic weapon system was foreign to me. Without prior knowledge, I studied pneumatics, hydraulics, electrical circuitry, explosives, and even a dash of rocket science. Navy education was like drinking from a fire hose, and since these were all new topics to me, I had to rely on rote learning. I memorized schematic drawings, voltage ratings, and score upon score of acronyms. I recall memorizing alphanumeric designators for valves. MG6, MG11, HMLS5, HML42, and so on. They were seared into my memory by the branding iron of repetition. But I was dismayed. I felt like all I was doing was merely learning laundry list of facts without any deep understanding. If someone asked me a question about missile tube hydraulics, my brain could fetch a list, associating columns of facts to that topic. There within, an answer would be contained. Though I had built many such lists in my head, they were just containers for knowledge, simple storage arrays in my memory. In other words, I was well trained to dominate nuclear missile trivia night, but I felt overwhelmed and frustrated with this process. I had learned to remember, but I had yet to learn to understand. Then came my first simulated launch. This is the captain. Second condition 1 SQ for strategic missile launch. Spin up missiles 1 through 5 and 20 through 24. Release of nuclear weapons has been authorized. XO, take the con. Go to my stateroom for the launch keys. Band Battle Stations missile. Spin up all missiles. Port recommended course to maintain range outside 4,000 yards. Captain, sir, I have Sierra 2 bearing 190. Tubes 1 and 2 are ready in the Captain, how can I help you? Test results from the missile drill. That's the best they can do. No, sir, but that's what they did. I want this down to five minutes. Train on it. Yes. Tell your buddy Wemps we're going to do it again. We're going to keep on doing it until he gets it right. Feels like the whole crew needs a kick in the ass. Toward the end of my pipeline training, a day was set aside for simulated launch drills in a lab mocked up to resemble the real weapon system in appearance and function. For the first time, I was able to see all pieces of the system working in concert. Gas valves opened and filled the tubes with nitrogen. High-pressure hydraulic rams opened the missile hatches. Faulty electrical circuits were overridden using troubleshooting procedures. And on and on. And then, understanding rose like a wave above the floodplain of my mind. 
spilling the banks of many categories. Instantly, the disparate lists in my head became hyperlinked together. I saw how missile gas and missile hydraulics tied together. I witnessed the relationship between software and safety functions. New factoids filled my mental lists, which were no longer disparate, but suddenly a web of functional knowledge. Lists of facts joined into systems of thought in an instant. From darkness, light. This is known colloquially as the aha moment. The aha moment is when shit suddenly, out of the wild blue yonder, makes sense. Of course, the phenomenon can be described more eloquently. Hi, I'm John Cunios. I'm a professor of psychology at Drexel University, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. Uh, I direct the creativity research lab here at Drexel, and I study what happens in the brain when people have creative, innovative ideas. Uh, I use mostly high-density EEG, electroencephalograms, to record the brain's activity. And together with my collaborator, Mark Beeman at Northwestern University, uh, he uses fMRI, brain scanning, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, we've, for many years now, been looking at aha moments, what psychologists call insight, when the, a new idea or a new perspective suddenly pops into your awareness seemingly out of nowhere. And uh, that is a, is a really fascinating aspect of creativity, and it actually debunks a lot of what you hear in the media. There's a lot of noise you hear in the media uh, about uh, what happens when people have creative ideas and what kinds of things you need to do to have creative ideas. Uh, a lot of the, these media articles, uh, they talk about different strategies, mental strategies to use. Well, creativity is not about mental strategies. Creativity is about a brain state. There is a state that we've identified using our neuroimaging techniques. And there are things that you can do to get into the state so that you'll be more likely to have these aha moments. So let me give you a quick idea about this. We've looked at what happens right at the moment when an idea pops into your awareness as an aha moment out of the blue. And that involves a burst of activity in the right temporal lobe of the brain, right about here, just above the right ear. Uh, what we were a little surprised about is that there are a whole series of unconscious brain states that lead right up to that, uh, that you're not aware of. Uh, and what we also discovered is each of those states, each of those steps towards an, a new idea can be influenced or tweaked in various ways to make it more likely that you'll end up having one of these aha moments. So a couple of quick examples. One is that just before you have an aha moment, the visual areas of your, of your brain dim slightly. We call it a brain blink. So you become very briefly less aware of your environment. Uh, there are a, a, a deterioration or a diminution of distractions. And you can get some of that same effect by sensory deprivation. If you go into a quiet, dark place, you're more likely to have aha moments than if you don't, if you're in a crowded, noisy place. Um, going a little further back, you can also get into a preparatory brain state by being in a positive mood. When you're in a positive mood, it activates a part of your brain right in the middle of the front of your cortex. It's called the anterior cingulate. And when you're in a positive mood and that area lights up, it literally expands the, the scope of your thought to encompass uh, all sorts of long shot and crazy ideas, the stuff of creativity. Uh, you can also enhance that state 
by expanding your attention. So if you're working in a small office cubicle where your attention can't expand to fill the space, you're more likely to think in a deliberate analytical fashion. If you go outside or if you're in a large room with high ceilings and your attention can expand to fill that space, so too does your mind expand to encompass all kinds of thoughts that you otherwise would not have entertained because you have that mental tunnel vision. So those are just a couple of examples of things you can do to manipulate your environment or manipulate yourself to encourage this brain state that is uh, uh, that will bring forth aha moments. I feel safe saying most people are familiar with the aha moment, although different people may call it something else, such as insight, epiphany, or the eureka effect. The point is, this is not anomalous within the human experience. It is likely that you, dear high filer, are subtly nodding your head in agreement right now, and you should feel good about that agreement, because famous Swiss psychologist and philosopher Jean Piaget would agree with you too. Piaget, an expert spelunker of the developmental mind, theorized that we, human beings, experience cognitive development through the process of assimilation. Resistance is futile. He concluded the acquisition of new learning has to be built upon or assimilated with prior learned memories. That's why all my missile knowledge accrued up to that point of aha was the result of rote learning. I had no prior understanding of mechanical systems or submarine warfare, but I did have experience memorizing historical dates and cramming for spelling tests, experiences provided for me by an industrial age education system. So that's how I assimilated my Navy training. That is, until the moment of the launch experience. Spin up all missiles. At once, those useless factoids assimilated to my first-hand exposure like iron filings leaping onto a magnet. Eureka! But Piaget realized that assimilation only describes half the story. But one way we learn. Sometimes we encounter information that does not fit neatly with any of our prior knowledge. There is nothing for it to glom onto. Piaget believed that the only way such totally new information can fit is if the pre-existing substrate of knowledge is rearranged. This means that some old links need to be broken so pieces can be moved around, ultimately forming new links. Piaget called this accommodation. Here's a great example of new knowledge forcing the accommodation phenomenon. Do you know why we're here today? Yeah. Well, we're here to talk about Santa Claus. <laughs> Where Santa Claus live? I know, on the, the North Pole. What else do you know about Santa? He's chubby. <laughs> Too much cookies, huh? Yeah. Well, Mama and I got something we need to tell you. Can we break some news to them? We're just telling them? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Santa isn't real. You know that Santa's not real? Uh, wrong. Santa Claus is real. Oh. Mommy is the one that writes from Santa, so she's lying to you. She's a liar. Yeah. Mommy just reads it, and then I, I throw it away. Mom. <laughs> 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 well, I'm, mommy really feel like we're a terrible person now because we are telling the truth. Santa Claus you, you, is not you, real. You are not telling the truth. Do you feel like you just don't want to believe it? Yes, it actually depends what the situation is. The situation is 
telling you that Santa is I don't believe that situation. <laughs> so then all this time I've been thinking that Santa ate the cookies. <laughs> yes. So you met Santa Claus at your school the other day at the pancake breakfast at your school. What did yeah, you Yeah, but that's the fake Santa Claus. That's Santa, Santa Claus's helper though. How'd you know it was a fake Santa? Oh snap, that's a good question. While we're here being truthful, do you know who the Tooth Fairy is? Oh, yay. It's your mother. Nope. If assimilation, like the aha moment, is when shit suddenly makes sense, then accommodation is when shit suddenly makes no sense. What the hell's going on out here? Learning occurs via accommodation because your mind is forced to restore order in the face of unexpected, interjected, Chaos. I took your little plan and I turned it on itself. You know, you know what I noticed? Nobody panics when things go according to plan. Even if the plan is horrifying. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. I apologize if I'm scaring you, high filers. I know chaos is a scary word. But we are touching on something quite beneficial, I assure you. The introduction of mental chaos can be quite healthy and necessary for learning. What, what we're all experiencing right now is, wait, is a wait what moment? Mm-hmm. The whole cu- culture is going, wait, 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 what? Wait, 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 wait. The NSA is listening to my fucking emails. They're listening to my voicemails. They're, they're reading my emails. I don't do anything wrong, man. Come on, I'm a, I'm a fucking insurance salesman. And then, and then people go, wait, 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 what? Marijuana makes how much in fucking taxes for Colorado? They make how much for, we, we, you know, we're running out of fucking money for schools and we could pay for that with weed, but being people are going to smoke the same amount of weed anyway, statistically proven. What the fuck is going on? When you look at, wait, 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 wait what? We're going to go into Syria? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What the fuck are we doing? This wait, what moment? Is we're all a part of this wait what moment. You're a big part of this wait what moment. Yes. You're a big part of it by they sticking your neck out about Bahrain and about CNN and about you know working for a corporation and being honest about it. You you, you stuck your neck out about it. We're all just we're all forced into this reality. We didn't ask to be here. We we weren't you know. Hey, could you give birth to me so I can grow up in the 21st century and fig- no, this is, this is what you get. You got, you, nobody asked you. This is what you get. And I think all of us realize that that was the same for our, our parents. It was the same for our grandparents. It was the same for everybody. And nobody hit the brakes. Nobody had the wait what moment where they went, wait, 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 wait. What the fuck are we doing? Mm-hmm. Everybody just kept going and then had heart attacks and died and taught a bunch of nonsense to their kids. And they went and they had heart attacks and died teaching a bunch of nonsense to their kids. And then the Internet came along. And that's the way what moment and the wait what moment, the real tipping point is people like you, people like me, people like anybody that's a part of the wait what moment. Mm-hmm. That might be my new T-shirt. The wait <laughs> what moment. Myself and good old Rogan aren't the only ones to notice this phenomenon. Pattern interrupt is a fundamental principle of neuro linguistic programming, a demonstrable technique for rewiring your own neural pathways made famous by self-help dynamo Tony Robbins. The way you change your state. Fastest way to do that is to make a radical change in your body. Although wait what is a term that accurately portrays the associated feeling, and pattern interrupt is the more widely known nomenclature, I like to call this the nuh-uh 
moment. What the fuck? I enjoy the symmetry and juxtaposition with the aha moment. And like the aha moment, we are assembling the mind in accordance with Piagetian theory. So the terms may as well be complementary. Chapter 2. Chaos and Cali. Though they are both equally dramatic, there is a fundamental difference between the aha moment and the nuh-uh moment. The former depends on serendipity. Things have to align in just the right way for insight to strike like... It's a bolt of lightning! What did you say? A bolt of lightning! If you try to purposely induce an aha moment, there is little guarantee of success. The best way is to stick your existing understanding up in the air like an antenna and drive around the roads of new knowledge at 88 miles per hour. Great Scott! Conversely, the odds of inducing a nuh-uh moment are much better. You need only venture off the beaten path. Step into the unknown. Seek out the strange. Make yourself uncomfortable. An event of this ilk recently happened to me, admittedly quite by accident. My daughter came home from school, dropped her backpack on a kitchen chair, and announced that she wanted to sign up for yoga class. Her request was highly novel, because no one in our family had ever really talked about yoga, much less tried it out. Unfortunately, I, playing the role of conservative provider, knew there wasn't sufficient wiggle room in our schedule to sign her up for a new extracurricular activity. However, I did not want to deter her enthusiasm, so I told her we could look up a YouTube video to try it out. In fact, I'd try it with her. Knowing nothing about yoga, I wasn't sure what to search for on the interwebs, until the word kundalini arose in my mind. I made that association because I heard the word mentioned on a podcast a few months prior. I couldn't remember anything about it, but the term was salient, so I rolled with it. After fumbling with the spelling, I finally pulled up a list of kundalini yoga routines. We spread out in the living room, father and daughter, reaching with toes and fingertips in full limb extension like da Vinci's Vitruvian man, ensuring we wouldn't pop each other's bubbles. Then I hit play. Thank you very much for joining, and let's begin. So sitting with a tall, straight spine, we'll begin this class of Kundalini Yoga with a tuning-in process. And by tuning in, you're really asking the mind, the body, and the spirit to be present for the practice and lead the way. So again, sitting with a tall, straight spine. Square your shoulders. And bring your palms together at the center of your heart, pressing your thumbs into the bone of your chest. The Adi Mantra is Ong Namo Gurudev Namo. And we'll be chanting three times before we begin the practice. I'm a bit sheepish to admit my thoughts at that moment. But I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up pre-internet and I was edumacated in rural Missouri. Therefore, my understanding of Indian culture has been limited. From fellow Midwestern American Christians, I heard over and over and over again, You know, them Hindus worship hundreds of gods. Indians worship, like, elephants and people, like, with, like, ten arms and, like, stuff. Indians stuff. 
still practice polytheism. They believe in thousands of gods. Hell, you know they think cows are gods? Did you know that's where we get the saying, holy cow? All quite sophisticated. And of course, if you bring up the subject of Indians in this conversational milieu, you will first be asked for clarification. Dots or feathers? But perhaps the most powerful, most vivid image I had of Indian religion and culture was provided to me by Hollywood. You don't. You know perfectly well that Huggy Cult has been dead for nearly a century. Yes, of course. Thuggy was an obscenity that worshipped Kali with human sacrifices. The British Army nicely did away with them. It's a Thuggy ceremony. They're worshipping Kali. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Nobody's seen this for a hundred years. Bali Chalhogi. So I sat there, in my living room, daughter at my side, trying to interpret this new experience with my underlying mental substrate. Brain. Yes, Captain. Analyze Om Namo Gurudev Namo against all previously assimilated knowledge, emotion, and thought. Captain. Preliminary search results return null. It is recommended that you do not chant. So, after not chanting, we carried on with the physical exercise. Near the end, we were propositioned with another mantra. Prior recommendation unchanged. I was steadfast. I wasn't going to say anything if I didn't know the meaning behind it. After all, I might be praying to Kalima. You don't believe me? You will, you will become a true believer. <laughs> After the chanting stopped, we laid down on our backs, ostensibly relaxing. However, 
I found myself simultaneously stimulated and stunned. I felt great. Unbeknownst tension had come to the surface and been released, leaving me in a disbelieving afterglow. How had I gone on in life missing this? I immediately knew it was something I wanted to do again, even if my daughter showed no further interest. There was just one problem. Those hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo words. If I was going to do this again, I wanted to know what the true meaning behind the whole thing was. Were the words innocuous or steeped in sacrilege? So the next day I took to the Googles to see what these wily polytheists were up to. First I typed Ong Namo Guru Dev Namo. So when we chant Ong Namo Guru Dev Namo, which means that I bow to that divine, or I invoke that divine presence, I invoke that divine presence that is within me. The way you invoke it is by opening up the chambers in which it dwells. Divine teacher within? I detected the echo of a particular verse in the Bible. John 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So basically, these polytheists are saying, I bow to the Creator, I bow to the Holy Spirit. What the fuck? Okay, okay, okay. You know what they say. Fool me once. So how about Ek Ong Kar? This mantra means there is one creator of this creation. Ek Ong Kar! Talk about a nut uh moment. This sounded nothing like a trip to Pankot Palace. Chilled monkey brain. But it turns out I'm even dumber than I thought. Those chants and Kundalini Yoga itself don't come from Hinduism at all, except in a tangential way. No, no. All of that is from the monotheistic Sikh religion. Samsonite. I was way off. I knew it started with an S, though. But even Hindus, I would later come to find out, aren't really polytheistic the way a fundamentalist Christian might assume. A few months after my religious nuh-uh moment, I crossed paths with a Hindu man. He was the owner-operator of a hotel whose services I procured for the evening. As I checked in at the office, I noticed a Ganesh statue behind the man. An offering of a fresh banana laid at the elephant-trunked god's feet. Out of a newfound curiosity, spurred by the nuh moment, I asked about the idol. In short, the man told me there is only one God, but there are many ways to see him or her. He asked me, where are you from? I told him, Missouri. And he said, if you are there and I am here, we both can look up and see the sky. Yours might be sunny and mine might have clouds. Our views look very different. But there is only one sky. What the fuck? While this is not the only nut uh moment I've had, it is a good example of the possibilities that await us when we learn through accommodation rather than assimilation. The simple act of trying something new, straying off the beaten path, changed everything. My whole world turned upside down. 
but it's worth noting that it occurred by happenstance. But what if it didn't? What would an intentional nuh-uh moment look like? Could I create one, or at least mimic the conditions? How would I do it? How would it feel? Chapter 3. The Atlas Obscura I believe the answer for creating nuh-uh conditions can be found in interrogatives. The who, what, when, where, why, and hows. So I focused on three of these for my experiment. What, where, and who. First, the what. I figured this is the high files after all, so why not try a completely new form of intoxication? I was able to obtain the right stuff from a fungus called Amanita muscaria, also known as fly agaric. In the Arctic Circle, this fungus also has magical associations with animals. Fly agaric contains hallucinogenic chemicals and is a favorite food of reindeer. For thousands of years, the lives of reindeer and Sami people have been entwined. Fly agaric was important to both of them. In autumn, reindeer seek out the mushrooms, even under an early fall of snow. No one knows whether the reindeer are affected, but in the past, Sami shamans took fly agaric in their visionary rituals. They even drank urine from reindeer, believed to be under the influence. In trance, they contacted the great reindeer spirit. On humans, the drug heightens senses and creates visions of flying. Some believe the greatest of all modern myths arose in the Sami's visionary flights of fancy. Perhaps early 19th century ideas drew on these stories to create a Christmas legend. And who says there's no such thing as Santa? As for me and the reindeer, we believe. Next comes the where. Sure, it would be quite nuh-uh-inducing to rove the grounds of Anchor Wat or step upon the shore of Easter Island, but for all this podcast's champagne tastes, we operate on a beer budget. So I asked myself, how can I find a novel place in my hometown? Enter the Atlas Obscura. While preparing for this episode, I stumbled upon this unique atlas, which is produced in website form. If you click on the About link, the site's raison d'etre reads thus. In an age where everything seems to have been explored, and there is nothing new to be found, we celebrate a different way of looking at the world. If you're searching for miniature cities, glass flowers, books bound in human skin, gigantic flaming holes in the ground, bone churches, balancing pagodas, or homes built entirely out of 
paper. The Atlas Obscura is where you'll find them. On the right-hand side of the webpage, there is a section labeled, This is what we believe. The three statements contained therein could be taken as a nuh-uh-moment manifesto that would make Jean Piaget proud. 1. There is something new under the sun every day all over the world. 2. Around the corner is something that will surprise the hell out of you. 3. Atlas Obscura is for people who still believe in discovery. In this same spirit, I typed St. Louis, Missouri into the Atlas's search function. Several results were returned, but one location caught my eye. Pruitt Igo's remains. An urban forest overtakes what was the greatest failure of utopian urban housing. What the fuck? I had never heard of Pruitt Igo, but in nuh-uh fashion, my ignorance did not last long. These developments are run by the St. Louis Housing Authority. This is a far cry from the crowded, collapsing tenements that many of these people have known. Here in bright new buildings with spacious grounds, they can live. Live with indoor plumbing, electric lights, fresh plastered walls, and the rest of the conveniences that are expected in the 20th century. After investigating multiple sources, I found the most concise and accurate recollection of the woe in some extremely well-written work that I will link to in the show notes. The following passages are derived from that work and tell the tale. Quote, By the time Pruitt Igo opened for occupancy, the need for public housing had abated. Low-income blacks by the late 1950s began to find space in formerly white neighborhoods, that were becoming increasingly vacant. Private market rents sank to public housing levels or below. And when many people discuss Pruitt-Igo, they often discuss it in terms of um, an architectural failure. Um, it's something that failed because of the style of architecture that it was built in. Architects have often discussed Pruitt-Igo in this way to kind of create this sense of Pruitt-Igo as this iconic place, as something that um, really uh, can be identified with the modern movement. And so if this fails, then the modern movement of architecture failed as a whole. After 1960, neither of the two white elephants, meaning Pruitt and Igo, managed to cover operating costs from rental incomes. In fact, after depleting their own small reserves, Pruitt and Igo absorbed the lion's share of the reserves that had accumulated from the other developments. And so that's the initial myth, but we kind of broadened it in our uh, analysis. And, you know, we're also talking about how um, public housing um, is often viewed as a failure because it is public housing, because it's uh, federal housing. People tend to blame the government. Or people tend to look at Pruitt-Igo um, as a failure because of the residents. They say that the residents tore up this public housing project. And so these are the kind of like general myths that we're dealing with. Pruitt-Igo reached a 65% vacancy rate by 1970, indicating that both tenants and housing officials had essentially abandoned it. End quote. When the temperatures dropped below freezing earlier this week, water lines in several of the Pruitt-Igo apartment buildings broke and a subsequent flow of water turned into ice. Today, as temperatures warmed, the ice thawed and residents continued to battle the resultant mess. At 2311 Dixon, a sewer line is broken, and now raw sewage bubbles out of the ground like a malevolent spring. 
In the building itself, residents and maintenance crews are working to clean up the mess. Elmer Hammond, chairman of the Human Development Corporation Neighborhood Advisory Council, has tried for three days to get city and housing authority officials to help remedy the plight. Well, I have tried to. I have talked with Mr. Meeker. I've talked with uh, Bart Wilson of Housing. Uh, asked him to, about this here situation for the last two days. And uh, Mr. Meeker called me and said he'd talk He's with He's in the mayor's office. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he said he'd called Mr. Klein, and Mr. Klein was supposed to send someone in, and no one ever showed. And the only alleviation of this problem that I have received thus far has been from HDC, from Mr. Cahill. What sort of assistance did you get from the Human Development Corporation, Mr. Cahill? Well, uh, through the petty cash that I discussed with Mr. Cahill, he sent out and bought me three electric heaters and were sent down to the uh, 2107 cash for us to distribute to these uh, families that had no heat in the their buildings on O'Fallon. In addition to the water, what, uh, how many families are without heat at this point? Well, I would say right now approximately uh, 40 or 50 people right now. And it's possibly that it will go higher than that before the, the day is gone. What's the likelihood that you're going to be able to remedy this? Well, the only thing I can do now is try to get a hold to the housing authority people and some of the city officials and see if we can get these people out of this building immediately. They cannot stand there over the night with these children. With the temperatures dropping as nightfall, the residents here in Pruitt-Igoe will probably be frozen in again. Then tomorrow, should the temperatures warm up, the water will come back. And so it'll go until somebody comes in to remedy the situation. Now, there are a lot of other groups that want to come in and do something, but we need you to tell us what is most important and what takes priority. I would like to recommend the following. <coughs> that you need, first of all, to have this area declared as a disaster area and an emergency area. That the second thing, that you work on evacuation, not trying to clean up what's here, but evacuation of the citizens who are here and who cannot make it in the condition that these homes are in uh, today. And the third thing is to work for a permanent solution to this problem which keeps coming up time and time and time again. And finally, the who. Who would join me on this excursion to the greatest failure of utopic urban housing? Who would complement the vein of the nuh-uh? The answer? Brandon Mesmer. This man fit the bill for two reasons. First, I only recently met Brandon. Our paths crossed as a consequence of sharing friends and an interest in podcasts. Since I did not know much about him, he fit the condition. He was outside the norm. Second, what little I did know of Brandon inclined me to believe that he would be down with the idea. I have many friends in my social Rolodex, but I have to admit that most of them would never agree to spend an afternoon the way I intended, on reindeer drugs, philosophizing whilst roaming through a wasteland of urban remains. That's not so much a knock against them as it is a statement of fact. How many times have you asked someone, How's it going? only to be hit with this old chestnut. Same shit, different day. Or my personal favorite, it's going. These types of unthinking responses might as well be grunts. There is no self-awareness in them. If variety is the spice of life, comfortable routine is the high-fructose corn syrup of life. And people fucking love high-fructose corn syrup. 
The problem with corn syrup is that it stimulates compulsory eating. Eating for eating's sake, and the food, and in this case life, is not even being tasted. But, I knew Brandon would be up for some spice, not sugar. It's just the kind of guy he is. So with a who, a what, and a where, we strode into the ruins like two loaded caribou, living life and trying everything. Strap in, high filers. This is an incredible journey. That way we can stand around it and just talk, and it should pick us up. Chapter 4, Pruitt-Igo, 2017. Fuck, man. I was going to ask you for one of those grizzly pouches, but I'll probably shit my pants. Why? They always make me have to take shit, and I'm already having to take shit. And I don't want to do that. All right, man, you got to smile, because we got to... Oh, okay. So you got to, like, you got to be proud. <laughs> Oh yeah, man. We That's fucking made awesome. it work. That's we made awesome. it work, dude. <laughs> this is a sweet setup. <laughs> dude, that's fucking sweet as shit. <laughs> Who needs a fucking studio, man? Oh, here, man. You want one? Are, uh, no, 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 no. I will get a drink, shit? though. No, if I eat one of those, I will. Eat one? <clears throat> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that would be disgusting to eat one. Oh, fuck. No, I just saw a car go by. Do you want to... That's weird. Yeah, that's weird. Do you want a uh, Gatorade? Yes, please. All right, hey, dude, let's talk about patterns, man. Because that's what, uh, why we're here. Well, first of all, why don't you tell folks who you are and uh, why we're here. I am Joseph Brandon Mesmer, also known as Rod Munch. And we are here to break out of the comfort zone. And so far, we've accomplished that because we've already built a tripod out of fucking suck dicks. And stones. Suck dicks and stones. And it works great, dude. That thing looks perfect. And what's insane is that we did that in the middle of St. Louis City. And that's what's holding my phone right now recording this. Is yes. The, the tripod made of sticks and stones. And... We're in the woods here in the middle of the freaking city. And uh, honestly, it's kind of awesome. Dude, intro yourself while I take a piss. All right. He's going to take a piss, but this is Brandon Mesmer reminding you, you can buy all the cherry Pop-Tarts you want for only one forty-nine if you use my promo code RODMUNCH at checkout at poptarts.com. Just saying... Just so you know, that's not true. You won't get shit. You can't get any Pop-Tarts. You won't receive any discount. Only I get free Pop-Tarts. Also, this is ground-breaking. 
because we are going outside of our zones. I'm not wearing a shirt, by the way. I'm in the middle of the city, in the middle of the woods, covered in sweat. I don't know how in the fuck this guy has two shirts on, but know. he does. It's my bald head, man. And you got it's, headphones on. That's right. Dude, it's hot as fuck in here. It is hot, but I don't want the mosquitoes to bite me up either. Yeah, well, also, <clears throat> Jordan did not tell me that we were going to be doing this. I told you we were going to go for a hike. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, well, I said it, it rained, so I didn't know if I wanted to go on a hike. And then he said it was going to be a, quote, <clears throat> interview. And then all of a sudden, here we are in the middle of the woods, in the city. I might get shot here. I don't know what's going on. He's got a backpack. So to give you some perspective of what we're looking at here, we're standing on a road that's almost completely overgrown by nature. But with the nature uh, coming through the cracks. Yeah, through the cracks. And as far as the eye can see, we can't see the city. It's all just like being yeah. in the middle of a forest, like some uh, you know, walking dead shit. And all you hear is the birds here. You don't hear any yeah. the homeless guys. Hey, you got any change? Oh, they're, no, they're out getting their change. change. I bet you they'll come here tonight. <laughs> well, they will be here, but we won't, I hope. But, uh, Dude, yeah. this looks like we're about to... <laughs> so, what uh, we were talking about when we came here, weren't we talking about seeing patterns in, like, bigger and smaller levels? Yes. Oh, yeah, it was like, if you, uh go to the same bar every night people can easily recognize dude that guy is following a pattern in life he goes to the same place every fucking night now if you go to the same if you zoom out one circular level and you just look at a bigger circular pattern well what if you only go to three different bars how often are you really breaking any sort of pattern and trying to throw in new stuff so that you're either A doesn't look like you're following a circle pattern through life or B, you know, you just uh, weave enough new experiences in there that keeps things kind of disrupted, kind of exciting. And I think that people always follow the pattern because that's all that they know and they don't want to break it. And that's why I have so much respect for everything that happened here. Yeah. Because I didn't know, for one, that I had to drive. Two, that I was going to the city. Three, that we were going in the woods. And four, that we were going to be doing a podcast. And five. And five. The, the that special I'm right juice. <laughs> yeah, and a special juice. Which I might need some more of, actually, because I don't really feel anything. Okay. Yeah, you can have some more juice, man. But, uh, so, for any anybody that's on this, is it okay to... Tell them about uh, I'll, the juice. I'll probably I'm gonna mention it that I'm gonna do it, but I'll I let you do. I it. don't want the whole episode to be us talking about that, you know. Well, no, I wanted to bring up that we're doing it like now, like yeah. It was only the fact that we're doing it, like that's all I wanted to bring up. Oh yeah, like, are for we sure. Allowed to? Yep. All right, so we're both gonna be doing. It's Amanita muscaria extract. I'm going to go ahead and say it the way I wanted to. Yeah, it says something different. Well, I'm going to pronounce this the way I want because it's going to be wrong and right. it's going to be awesome. Agricus muscarius. 
I think that's pretty pretty close. Uh, well then, fuck. That's not funny. <laughs> yeah, I think you got it pretty good, actually. <laughs> if, well, that's not that's not good at all. And now I'm about to put some in my mouth. Hmm. Whoa. I can see that single leaf blowing. Like, notice it. You know what I mean? Far away. You can see it, still see a single leaf. So, obviously, he feels it. I don't yet. I just think I'm not... I don't have any improved vision or anything. I'm just noticing things I normally wouldn't. Or maybe Yeah, like that's, the pink bench on the way here. And maybe that's also because we are experimenting with breaking up the pattern. And I think that's one of the side effects of living in a patternistic lifestyle is that everything becomes gray and meaningless and not a lot of stuff sticks, you know? And that's you why... You gotta have a purpose on your life, so you gotta find something new. That's why people get excited when the new season of sports is gonna happen, but it's the same old fucking shit. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Like, I enjoy sports change. as much as the next guy, but, I mean, get a little bit further outside something being a little abnormal... From the gray fucking pattern. And when you do that just as a voluntary act to try to spice things up, uh, I think you just start noticing different things, you know. Holy you're... shit, we're getting hunted, man. Holy be. shit, we're getting gunned down. Uh, ah! Ah! <laughs> oh my god. That Did actually anybody... makes me nervous, man. Did anybody actually hear that? I just almost got shot by a helicopter. That actually makes me a little nervous. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Dude, there's trees all around. For once, the whole way here, I was the nervous one. Yeah, that, that just makes me And then now nervous. I'm like screaming at the thing. Well, uh, <laughs> Here's how you could tell I've had a drink is whenever I that's yell That's the difference. At yeah, that's the difference. I but... only had one, but here's the thing. I am sweating a lot. Drink your Gatorade, So... Dude. Yeah, I need to hydrate or else I'm going to pass out. Yeah, we can get a, We should get a beer when we leave here. Go stop by a pub or something. For sure. I'm down with that. So, breaking out of the patterns... Helps you to just notice life fuller, I think. Because you're always now on the lookout. Is, for isn't that why p- people go on the trips to Rome and all that shit. I know that's why I take uh, my kids on a road trip every year. It is something that I've sworn I will do. Every year I'll take them to a different state or city or whatever. Yeah, dude, you got to experience. And I hate, 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 hate whenever I go somewhere with some friends, family, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, I just want to be in a hotel and I'll or- and I'll order a burger. It's like, you could be doing that at home. It wouldn't be the same thing, but go out and live a little bit. Like, go out and enjoy life. The thing is, it depends on where you go. If you're going to be going to a dangerous location, probably don't go out as much. Well, that you night. have to know what your own threshold for danger is. I mean, I'm not uh, snowboarding down the side of a mountain. <laughs> That would be a I very would. that would be a very exciting experience and probably valuable to have, but uh, I just have never done it, and it's probably because I don't feel like I need to do activities that are that dangerous. I can I can create novelty out of other things. Does that make sense? Oh, like what kind like, of things? Like sneaking into the middle of an abandoned forest in the middle of a city and 
building a fucking tripod. Hey, the coolest thing of sticks. The th- coolest thing about building the tripod is it just spontaneously came up. Like the whole idea. Dude, it worked that. so well too. <laughs> yeah. Dude, we found we worked together as a team finding the. Perfect Dude, I sticks. found one thing and handed it to you. You, found, you got the rocks too, though. Yeah, which you saw though. You were like, "Hey." grab those rocks and i was like okay i believed we could do it i I believed we could do it man so so it is a quote team effort but it's all it's It's also it was just fun it was just fun uh doing that as an exercise dude uh we're also i'm just gonna throw this out there we're also gonna leave this tripod here and we should leave something underneath it so that someone thinks something insane happened here. Because this looks like a cult thing right here. This looks like so a burning draw of like a body a or pentagram, something. Carve a pentagram in the ground. We could. How, we could do that. How about we draw like a... S- <laughs> no, I have a better idea. Let's draw something completely innocent. Well, it's what I was going to say is like let's draw something. a smiley face. Okay, there we go. In it, <laughs> and then have it with the devil horns like yeah. the old uh, World Industries. Oh, no, what we had. should do? Um, there's the Cacophony Society. Have you heard of this? No. Oh, this will be a good subject to talk about. Some of their ideas coincide with what we're talking about, about breaking up patterns. But instead of doing it in their own lives, they want to do it in small bursts in society. So that might mean everybody in the local group decides to come to one bar one night, but they don't tell them that they're coming. And then they'll all, like, I think they dress, like, in pajamas or something. So you're imagine you're the bartender or the restaurateur, and you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, 50 people come in wearing their pajamas. That's going to snap you out of your pattern right there. You're going to be yeah. like, what the fuck? That's going to become a memorable evening. So their idea is instead of projecting these kind of concepts inward on yourself, which you should do and is good, and which they are doing by their silly little pranks, but they're also projecting it outward. It's like when Sam and I made that movie where I pretended to be retarded in the art museum, and I had a helmet on, a Taekwondo helmet, and I was pretending to be retarded going, <laughs> And walking around, and they kicked me out, of course. Uh, but that was a novel experience. And I'm sure it was for them, too. A 20-something-year-old man. <laughs> Pretending to be a, a retard. There's a movie of it. We shot a movie there. Yeah, dude, that's fucking awesome. Um, but, so this Cacophony Society, those are stuff like that. Or they, uh, I think they did the morning news one time. One of their chapters dressed all as Spider-Man, and they showed up slowly throughout the morning newscast. You know how they do the ones oh, in yeah, New I York saw, yeah. with the open windows, and suddenly it'd just be like one of them standing there, and, oh, hey, look, a Spider-Man. And they'd even acknowledge it on air, and then another Spider-Man would show <laughs> up, and then, like, three more would walk out. That might be a David Letterman bit, too. I could be thinking of the There's a thing. whole bunch of that kind of stuff. But, uh, like, flash mobs are kind of like that, I guess, if you think about that. Those ones Dude. that coordinate a dance. <laughs> yeah, they coordinate a lot of stuff. Like, see, I would want to do that, but I would want to do something, like, extreme. Can you imagine how like, silly it would be? It would be 50 awesome. Dudes, <laughs> 50 dudes walk into a restaurant, all right? Yeah. And all at once, they just point a gun at the guy, and they're like, <laughs> we want your money! And there's 
50 dudes with a gun in the guy's face demanding the money. Like, what the fuck? You don't that have a choice. insane. Yeah, you don't have a choice, do you? <laughs> you don't have a choice but to fucking give him the money <laughs> and hope that you don't end up with 100 bullet holes in him. That one might but go see, wrong. Like, but... I go extreme with how I want to see shit. So... Like, that would make me laugh. <laughs> Remember, this is what uh, kind of the darker version of this idea is Project Mayhem from Fight Club. But it's the same idea of shaking things up by giving somebody outside of yourself a unique experience, you know? Yeah. In uh, Fight Club, they were doing stuff like that. Like, remember the exploding the smiley face into the building or lighting it on fire or whatever? Yeah. That's the dark side, but it's the same principle. Imagine if you looked out your window living in a city and all of a sudden you see a freaking glowing smiley face on the side of a building that wasn't there <laughs> two seconds ago. That well, would be a you would be like, experience. what the hell just happened right here? Yeah, that would be insane. It would be like whoever stumbles upon our tripod, <laughs> or stumbles upon it, you know? Well, they won't know what the fuck is going on, because this thing looks very, uh, very dark. I actually heard that uh, the thing that I'm talking about, too, with the pattern interrupt stuff, is actually a tool for training your mind to be sharper as well. If your life is kind of blah, same old churning, churning, it's... Which is mine. Probably means your mind is following that same pattern. And if you interrupt your life a little bit, you interrupt your pattern of your mind and it goes off in new directions. that makes sense? Which, oh, it does for sure. Um, so, like, this one guy, I read a book, he suggested... It's called, is it a comfort challenge? He says, just go into a public place, lie down on the floor for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, something like that. That's all you got to do. And he's like, most of you won't do it. Because we don't want to break that society's pattern on us, you know? And it's like, oh, I I see a pattern every day. People don't do that. You can't lie on the floor in a public place. Sure you can. I don't think there's anything, any law against it. Well, there's not any law, yeah, man. You yeah. can do that as long as it's not a sidewalk or something. Well, don't or do... in the middle of the road and yeah. trying to get killed or something. But, like, what if you just lie down on the sidewalk outside of Star- Starbucks or something like that, you know? Or the, but what this guy was saying was do it on the floor inside of Starbucks. And then he said all you have to do is hold yourself there for 30 seconds. And he goes, it's a tremendous mental exercise because you are really... For even though a small bit, you're breaking a major hole in everybody's pattern, you know. And they say it makes your... And he was recommending it based on sharpening your mind, you know. And that makes sense, though. Oh, my God, we're getting shot at again. (laughs) They sent in the big dogs this time. Oh, my God, where are they? They got thermal imaging aimed, pointed down at us, man. Well, it's a good thing I got a cold-ass heart. (laughs) That makes it easier for them to find yeah, you. Man. They'll know it's no, you. No, man, they can't fucking see my cold-ass heart in all this <laughs> heated woods. <laughs> no, they will do pattern recognition because they know that people are made of patterns, and they will see that you have a warm pattern and oh, then a pattern interrupt. Oh, don't be bringing this back to the actual episode. <laughs> and then you'll have this don't cool, cold trying to loophole this pattern back. interrupt and their thermal imaging pattern software. <laughs> their thermal imaging Bullshit. software will find you. There's some more cars, man. They look like a truck. I think we're seeing it because it's the size of a truck. (laughs) Which makes sense. Yeah. We're seeing it because it's the size of a truck. I'm hoping that means that it's farther away. I just hope it's not somebody looking for us. (laughs) I think interrupting patterns is one of the best things you can ever do, though. Because 
I like the way I live, but at the same time I don't. Like it's a, it's a. We're not win, complaining. Lose. Yeah, we're not complaining. Yeah, that. but I would love a change, but then when it comes, I don't want it to happen, but I have to deal with it. You just have to be the one to actually want to force that. Now, that's the argument, actually, is the more change that you keep in your life, the more resilient you will be when something goes wrong because it's a part of change. And since you live in change, you understand that's what it's That's all like. you know. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I, I know how this will turn out. It'll be fine on the other side of this. And, and all I know is the same <coughs> pattern that yeah. I'm on. So, yeah, it's going to be hard to change. Hey, we that. kicked that bitch in the nuts today, though. Yeah, we did. The pattern of life. Stuck it to Freaking, it. Freaking, we're out here again in the middle of the woods. And after this, we might venture on. I don't really know. But there is a path here, which may lead to, and I quote from what I've read online, Colonel Sanders' secret <laughs> recipe. I heard it's back there. We might be going. Dude, if we found that, that would change a lot of things. In life. Dude, we're going to become millionaires. What would you do if you found the secret recipe? Blackmail the fuck out of that guy. Or whoever the fuck's in charge. I wouldn't. I would give it to Julian Assange so that he has to leak it through WikiLeaks. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know who that And he's like, oh, Julian Assange has made himself a mighty enemy on this day. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, he gave it out to Colonel's dad. <laughs> if you thought uh, you were going to have problems with the with generals, <laughs> how about colonels? I don't care. If, I already know that you have a title, but it should be called in parentheses, the colonel's dead. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. So it will be the patterns of life. Comma, the colonel's dead. What <laughs> so if, uh, people don't know what the fuck. What if what we found, though, we thought it was the original recipe, and it turns out it's an older recipe, an original recipe from, like, the first year they launched, and it turns out it caused uh, women who were pregnant to have their kid be born with Down syndrome. <laughs> but they didn't note that on the recipe card, so we just see original recipe chicken. We make it up and we serve it to our family and friends for years. And, and then that's we... called Blue 42, man. <laughs> they put that shit in the Gatorade. <laughs> that's Down just, Syndrome shit. I just drank some Gatorade, son yeah. of a bitch. Well, dude, it's not blue, so you're all right. And here's the thing. <laughs> the chicken is not blue. But that's because they put Blue 42 in the coloring and the breading. So, blue and mostly yellow. To make the brown? Yeah, That's it's, it's like up. a brownish. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It makes it brown. Well, now you know why kids have downs. Yep. Can blame the colonel and <laughs> they don't just Gatorade. Have <laughs> they don't just have downs. They have double downs. <laughs> Damn, dude. So, <laughs> do you win double? Or? The KFC double down. <laughs> the KFC double down. Double the tar, double the flavor. You thought, you, thought, <laughs> you thought we took mental retardation out of the recipe back in the 60s. Nope, nope, we double down. <laughs> we're back, and we won. We, we fucking won double this time. 
twins with Down syndrome. Jeez, man. <laughs> Doubling down. So, back to the real <laughs> subject. I hope. Oh, man. That's what you get when you interrupt your pattern. That's what you get, man. We fucking talk about twins with Downs. The whole time I'm standing here, I don't notice that rag, and then now I look at it, and it's like... That looks like some panties. I also saw the tire there and <laughs> the tire like there. Oh, I didn't yeah, notice man, those. I just noticed that soda can. Or that oh, there's a tire there, there too. too. Yeah, there is. There's a whole bunch of tires. Hey, notice, there's a tire there. There's four of them. When we shut the fuck up, we noticed stuff. Yeah, doesn't make for good I'm, podcasting, though. No, here's the thing. The only thing I feel with what we took is that I'm way more attentive with what I see. Yes. And I know that you are as well because that was the first thing that you did. That was the first effect I noticed. So here's the deal. Jordan decided... Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Hey, let's talk about these symptoms here for a second. All right. That way, since I don't have a journal, I mean, I brought my journal, but I don't want to write in it. We'll I don't have one. Capture it now, since we're both on it. I was just thinking. So you started to notice, or I started to notice aspects of the visual landscape that normally I feel like I a wouldn't notice, and b when I did notice them, I was like, I'm glad I noticed that. That was interesting. Yeah. And I feel like today has kind of been like that on this. And then now I feel like that richer perception of the visual landscape makes things mo- look more like art, like painted art or even digital art. It, it looks believe, uh, beautiful, man. I think that psychedelics are definitely made for, and it sounds so dumb, but I was going to say for your eyes and mind. Yeah. Which makes sense because it's how you perceive things. Yeah. But this is very beautiful. But the thing is, why do we need psychedelics in order to appreciate what's around us? Very rarely do I ever like go, oh man, this looks amazing. I wish I could be here every day. I have to travel outside of my comfort zone in order to see that stuff. You know, the uh, argument can be made. There's two arguments that I'll make. And one is that it's that way because you're missing a part of your diet. This is a part of your diet as a human being. We wouldn't question, like, we don't question, why do I need air to live? We just know that our body needs it. So maybe in the same way that our body needs air and needs protein and needs things like that our mind needs this as part of the diet and I don't see any problem with that I just noticed that whenever whenever I have ever taken it and I've only done psychedelics four times maybe five Yeah. and uh but the main thing I did notice is that I have appreciate things more and it's like why can't my mind always be so because you're thankful for what i have maybe you you have dietary deficiency man that of whatever is in that yeah i'm saying having the or and same with mental diet of experiences and that's what we're talking about yeah that's what i need to do more we're missing a part of the human experience and I think that's a big part of it. The other thing I would say is that you don't need 
a substance, your brain can do it on its own. Oh, yeah. But it takes some different avenues and exploring, you know, and finding out how your mind works. And the best way to probe that is meditation, in my opinion. I was going to say, and edit this out, please. Mm -hmm. Do not edit this out. Okay. (laughs) I actually have been learning how to meditate, like, in the past two weeks or so. Are you sticking to it? Somewhat. It's hard to at times. Let me tell you something. It's like a snowball. If you keep it rolling, it will do everything else. But the rolling part means you do it. I recommend every day. Dad, that's the hard part about it is that you have to. Man, that's the same thing with everything in life, though, is that you have to want working it. out, and you have you to have be to disciplined. It. That's it. Yeah, that, that's why, man. I wanted to work out for a while. Yeah, I haven't in so long. Because you're in a pattern. Yep, and it's hard to get out of those patterns. It's very hard. It's very hard for sure. But that's why you do stuff like this. You know, that's why I've. I felt a lot more open to just the possibilities of life, I guess you could say, from small changes and big changes, you know. But it's always a pattern interrupt that makes things, I don't know, exciting. Ta- or gives things their flavor. Horrible. Yeah, but it's a flavor of life. And yes, it does get bad. We talked, we talked about this before. Uh, there's one more of those motherfuckers. Come in, there's two more of those motherfuckers. They're, They're everywhere. They're yeah. everywhere. They are everywhere. Holy shit. So they I think the Saduff is... Hey, it's the Gnome Clan, dude. Yes, yeah, the Gnome Clan. This Saduff is kicking in, I think, because I'm seeing fur balls all over the place. Yes, there's cats all all around this little area. This is not cat. Oh, that's, not that's cat fucking fur. sweet. It's not cat fur. No, that's capper. It's a cottonwood seed. No, that's capper, dude. At We're it. surrounded by cat. There's a dude, seed. You're freaking gonna look. It's a seed. There's cats all around us, and that's you're gonna deny it. Cottonwood seed. You're gonna <laughs> deny the listeners. I am gonna deny it. Could you imagine being here at night? No, because I would <laughs> never be here at night. <laughs> we went into downtown by South. Where is it? I guess South Broadway. So it's by where my band would always play shows. Check them out. Colors from McCannon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're not in a band anymore. But I got actually held up at Knife Point there once. So this guy was like, hey, we're going to be going to a park here. I'm like, sweet. Well, that's a great way to get out of the comfort zone is to go to where I once got robbed and then go out with a beer in my hand. Are you, have you found it therapeutic, though? And actually, yes, I have. Good. And actually, uh, if it's okay with you, I wouldn't mind having another dose. Oh, you can go ahead, man. Another dose. Another dose. Things that make you go, hmm. Chapter 5.
Chamber of Echoes. As that day wound to a close, Brandon pulled up to his house, stopped the car, and we talked for a little bit, and he mentioned something to me. He said uh, that he realized something about patterns and that he needed to make some changes in his life. And he had a quite profound look on his face. This told me that our little experiment did something. It moved something in Brandon. But also I have first-hand experience and can tell you that it moved something in me. Learning about Pruitt-Igo and then standing in it in three-dimensional space really made me think about you know how so many things can start out with good intentions and wind up so badly. And then I asked myself, what was the root cause? What was likely going on? And what really struck me was the immobilized feeling of everyone, like nothing could be done about it. And that kind of immobilization is a symptom of groupthink. I started this episode with a recollection of my military experience. And one of the things I learned through that experience is that when you have a homogenized group, you really need to be on the guard and be worried about groupthink. It got so bad in the military that, you know, they would actually use it as a pejorative term if you were in trouble to say you went on independent ops, meaning you just did your own thing, independent operations. That was a pejorative for people that get, got in trouble. Shows you the level of groupthink. So I asked myself, what's going on here? And I didn't know much about groupthink, and that's when I stumbled upon it through research. And after I researched groupthink for a while and could see it in the military, as I was in the training facility one day, I noticed a placard posted to a door. And it told this current-day fable called Five Monkeys and a Ladder. I'll read to you now what it said. A group of scientists placed five monkeys in a cage, and in the middle, a ladder with bananas on top. Every time a monkey went up the ladder, the scientists soaked the rest of the monkeys with cold water. After a while, every time a monkey would start up the ladder, the others would pull it down and beat it up. After a time, no monkey would dare try climbing the ladder, no matter how great the temptation. The scientists then decided to replace one of the monkeys. The first thing this new monkey did was start to climb the ladder. Immediately, the others pulled him down and beat him up. After several beatings, the new monkey learned never to go up the ladder, even though there was no evident reason not to, aside from the beatings. The second monkey was substituted, and the same occurred. The first monkey participated in the beating of the second monkey. A third monkey was changed and the same was repeated. The fourth monkey was changed, resulting in the same, before the fifth was finally replaced as well. What was left was a group of five monkeys that, without ever having received a cold shower, continued to beat up any monkey who attempted to climb the ladder. If it was possible to ask the monkeys why they beat up on all those who attempted to climb the ladder, their most likely answer would be, I don't know. It's just how things are done around here. Does that sound at all familiar? So I thought about this group think that seemed to be so evident in the Pruitt-Igo situation and was clearly evident to me in the military context. And I thought, does this maybe scale up this concept of group think to some of the problems we're seeing in our nation these days? The ultra-division, the ultra-victimhood, 
I started to think, is the nuh-uh moment an antidote? You know, after we had our excursion, I saw my city differently and Brandon saw his life differently. We didn't see it for the way things had always been done. But our culture is less and less built like that. Less and less prone to induce a nuh-uh moment. The more things you like on Facebook, the more things you will be shown that are like that. Facebook is not real life. The more YouTube videos you click on to watch, you will be fed a sidebar with identical opinions and content. Netflix. Oh, this is viewed as a very good thing. They had an algorithm contest to figure this out. Now when you sit in front of your boob tube, you can be sure that you get a 98% match of what the algorithm thinks you would like. Hey, algorithm, maybe a 25% match so I can see something I've never seen before. That might be nice. That's why any of these platforms you engage in... Instagram. ...where you form your opinion from those platforms... Inevitably, you're going to find your opinion shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until you think you are the lone man crying out in the wilderness. You're the one who has found it. You know what's going on. Podcasts are not real life. But you're not woke. You're a fanboy. You're not red-pilled. You're an aficionado. And when you echo rhetoric intra-group, you're not a cheerleader, you're a sycophant. But even in these situations, the not uh moment is still the solution. But it has to be a conscious, human mode of being. Because there are plenty of forces out there, the attention market that is geared towards making you think one way. In the Chamber of Echoes, nuh-uh moments are vacuumed out before ever having a chance to implant. That's why it's up to all of us to consciously cross intellectual borders, to decry the cult of safe spaces, become comfortable being uncomfortable, and have the courage to say, nuh-uh. Chapter 6. I think, therefore I am. I believe in participation, um, and my big concern now is that you have not just two Americas economically, but you have two Americas increasingly culturally. Yes. And And then that can curdle into a kind of tribalism. And once you have tribalisms in your country, and you're not all striving toward that one goal, 
uh, it can become really messy. Well, this is a this is a consequence. Uh, you know, one of my concerns is that technology, including communications technology, churns at such a fast rate now yeah. that we 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 don't have we don't have the capacity. It seems to get our arms around the social implications of it, and uh, you know now we have a we have a media environment in which. On the one hand, you have a multiplicity of sources of information, which is positive, but people also have the ability, which many seize on, to to to, to seek out those outlets that affirm their views instead and, of inform their views. And you know what the worst thing is? I am so guilty of that, and I try not to be. I used to pride myself, oh, I listen to Rush Limbaugh, I watch Fox, but actually now you can kind of track what you're doing. And, you know, I look at the cable, and you know, when you hit last and you kind of see what uh, it's CNN, uh, PBS, MSNBC, way down the line, Fox, yeah. because I myself am participating in that whole thing. That yeah, whole I, was in, I was in my hotel the other day, and for whatever reason, my the television was broken, and I could get Fox but not the others. And um, uh, it was good. It was good to hear what was being discussed there. But, you know, this, there, there, there are these, there are these uh, well-understood social psychological phenomena which, you know, come to play at different moments. We're, we're, you know, we're social animals. We're, we can understand human behavior through scientific inquiry. We, my lab spends a lot of time on this, obviously, in various ways. And, and um, anyway, on the point of deindividuation, you know, what's very important in those settings is it's very important for the um, people to feel themselves to be as individuals and not as part of the crowd and to feel themselves capable of moral agency. So you want the people to sort of be identified by name. You know, I am so-and-so. I'm not just part of this crowd. And you want them to see the person to whom they're speaking as a human being, right? Like, there was a wonderful, like, I have gotten death threats periodically in my life for not many, two or three or four times, and uh, or I've gotten lots of hate mail. Well, not lots, but periodically I've gotten hate mail the last 10 or 20 years about different things. And I always respond to it, you know, unless I get, I can't cope with the volume of mail I'm getting. And, uh, and people are, and the person will send you these very vile things and you respond to them and they say, oh my God, I, I didn't think you would answer me. And then they'll say, you know, I'm actually not a bad person. I'm so sorry. I said those mean things to you. <laughs> you know, you can mm -hmm. literally defang yeah. many people who send vile things because they, they don't recognize that you're a human being on the other end of the line and, uh, that you're actually capable of talking to them. And, you know, not everybody can be dealt with this way, but some people can be dealt with this way. And so there was a wonderful experiment done by a grad student at NYU published about six months ago in which he was, um, he developed a system for identifying um, racist speech online, uh, people who were tweeting out a lot of very racist things. And he developed these uh, little bots. They, they were actually more like sock puppets. So he developed these accounts where the, the people, the, 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 these fake accounts, they're either a white person or a black person, the little photograph, the cart avatar of the Twitter account. And the person either had few followers or many followers. So it was low status or high status. And he experimentally, what he, he had a corpus of people who were sending out racist tweets. And when they did that, so this racist person, let's say, was sending out a very vile racist tweet with bad language to another person. So person, the racist person A sends a tweet out to person B. Then these bots, person C, would respond to person A and say very sweetly, hey, man, you probably shouldn't do that. There's a real person on the other end of that. And he found that this simple intervention, especially if you had a white person that did that with high followers, so his experiment was to test whether the status of the 
intervener mattered. He, but it, nevertheless, it was always helpful, as I remember the experiment. He was able to show that that simple cultivation in the person expressing hatred of a recognition of the common humanity attenuated the behavior for months afterwards. That account reduced or eliminated the racist tweets they were sending. So my point in that example and in the other stuff we're saying is, is that you can actually use these basic liberal principles of our common humanity to redress and address wrongs and hatred and violence in our society. And, and you know, I think it's, I think, and to in some ways uh, attempt to tamp down a little bit on, um, on um, certain aspects of mob uh, behavior. When you comment, don't name, call, slur, libel, or vilify. Don't use those casual ism words. They're not enlightening. They don't advance understanding. Rather, embrace the dignified reasoned language of evidence, justification, argument, the modes of civil discourse that are fitting for those worthy of self-rule and democracy. And realize that operating in the marketplace of ideas is hard work. It requires patience and restraint, investigation and effort. If you're not willing to do that, turn the page or wait for another day. Realize also that operating in that marketplace means sometimes being offended, upset, bruised, or even outraged. Democracy and debate, robust and wide open, are not for the faint of heart. I myself read things every day in the media and from the academy that I find insensitive or offensive or exasperating. I hear insults and half-truths about people I know, my friends, conservative intellectuals. Offense and upset just go with the territory. They're a part and parcel of an open society. They can never be entirely banished. Finally, I recommend bringing principles of decency and restraint of civil discourse into the wider world. Yes, you have the right to dislike, avoid, shun people who don't share your politics. I certainly have been on the receiving end of that right here. Yes, you have a right. But is it a right thing to do? I say, generally not, certainly not always. It is not good for our society or for our country. We have to live together. We have to solve our problems together. We have no choice. Of course, you will sometimes feel passionate and adamant in your opinions. You will believe things very deeply, and you will believe that other people are wrong. But maybe, just maybe, people who disagree have something to offer, something to contribute to the marketplace of ideas. Now, the other thing that you might want to think about this is really useful as far as I'm concerned, is you might want to think about this politically. And we've been doing a lot of work. I'm going to have one of my graduate students actually come and talk to you about the work we've been doing on personality and, pol and political belief. So what happens with political belief is that if you're high in openness and low in conscientiousness, you tend to be a liberal. The openness being the particularly important part of that. And if you're low in openness and high in conscientiousness, especially orderliness, you tend to be a conservative. Now, it's kind of strange because openness and conscientiousness aren't very highly correlated. So it's not obvious why those two traits would combine to determine political belief. And, and the relationship is actually quite strong between temperament and political belief if you measure political belief comprehensively. But it seems to me that the fundamental distinction, and this is the political game, at least along the liberal conservative axis, is boils down to one thing. It boils down to how open borders should be compared to how closed they should be. And, you know, you can see that reflected, for example, in the attractiveness of Trump to a large part of the general population because he's going to 
close the borders, build a wall, and fortify the borders. And conservatives like that. They like to have borders between things stay tight. And they don't even care if it's state borders or political borders or town borders or ethnic borders or borders between ideas or borders between sexual identities. Conservatives like to have things stay in the damn box where they belong, partly because they're orderly and partly because they're low in openness. They don't get any real, they're not interested in what happens if you free up your conceptions. All they see in that is the probability of disorder. Whereas liberals who are high in openness and low in conscientiousness slash orderliness, they get a real charge out of letting things out of the box so that they can creatively interplay. Now the issue is, who's correct? And the answer is, you don't know. Because the environment underneath the political landscape moves. And so sometimes the right answer is, tighten up the borders and fortify. And sometimes the right answer is, no, no, no. Loosen things up because everything's getting too static and tight and we need more information. And the dialogue that occurs in the political landscape, this is why dialogue is so important, is fundamentally between these two opposing views of borders. And because you can't say with certainty which one is right at any given time, an open dialogue has to maintain itself so that the entire political state can maneuver properly along that moving line. It's absolutely crucial. It's really, really, really useful to know that people vote their damn temperament. It, gets you, it gives you more of an understanding, at least in principle, of, your, of those who sit on the other side of you on the political fence. And there's been recent newspaper articles, quite interesting. I tweeted a couple of them about this company in UK called Cambridge Analytics. And they're using the damn Big Five. They can extract out Big Five information from your Facebook likes. They've got a model of every single person in the United States, Big Five personality. And they help Trump craft political messages right down to the level of apartment buildings to appeal to people based on their big five temperament. And that's all recent work. And so one of the things that's very interesting is we are teaching computers to understand us so fast you can't believe it. And we really do risk walking into an electronic world where you will only see what you want to see. I mean, obviously, the marketers are trying to do that as as fast as possible, right? They only want to send you ads that you're going to be interested in because it's expensive and foolish to send you anything that will annoy you or that you'll ignore. And so the marketers are trying like mad to map who you are, even by watching your eyes. They're, They're trying to figure out who you are so they can send you the right information. But the danger is that that'll happen, say, in the domain of news and broader information increasing this tendency for people to be siloed in their exposure to the external world. It's a big, sort of like each of us is becoming a micro-celebrity surrounded by electronic sycophants who do nothing but tell us exactly what we want to hear. It's a real problem. Karl Popper, a famous philosopher of science, said that one of the things that you should do, and this is akin to the Piagetian view, is you should always look for information that contradicts your current viewpoint. Now, that's painful, right? Because who wants their axioms contradicted? It can take you apart. But it's the only way that you can ensure that you're learning at the same time that you're maintaining your stability. And that's another reason why it's really necessary to engage in dialogue with people that you do not agree with. Because they're the ones who will tell you things that you don't know. It's it's of crucial importance in the maintenance of your own stability. The worst thing that can happen to a person... No because there's many horrible things that can happen to a person. But one of the worst things that can happen is that you find yourself in a situation where no one is offering you corrective feedback anymore. 
because you rely on the corrective feedback provided by other people to keep yourself sane, to keep moving in the ever-changing environment. And if you cut yourself off from that feedback, then, well, then you end up static and shrinking. It's really, it's really not good. You get less and less competent, you get less and less confident, and the threats outside of you loom larger and larger. What the fuck? Ain't it fun?